Father, I thank you for that prayer that all of us offered in song to acknowledge that there is no other place to go when we study the word but to your spirit. And Lord, to plead that you would through the pages of the Holy Spirit, or pages of the Holy Scriptures by the Holy Spirit, show us Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We bow before your word today and plead once again, show us Christ. In your glorious name and all God's people said, amen. The Keswick Convention, that may not ring a bell to you, but it is a famous Bible conference that actually began back in 1875 in the wonderful English, English countryside of uh, Cumbria. It is a Bible conference in that first year that had 400 people attend. It started with a Monday night prayer meeting. And they brought in the best speakers they could find in England, G. Campbell Morgan, Hudson Taylor, F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray, and many, many others. Some of those names may mean, mean nothing to you, but if you've been around uh, the evangelical Bible world for a while, perhaps those are well-known names. For someone who enjoys history like myself, I could spend hours just dealing with all of uh, the wonderful facets of this amazing convention. It actually was called a Bible conference, more of a British name until D.L. Moody, the American, got over and then they changed it to convention. I'm not sure that was a positive move, but so it was. In 1969, and by the way, the convention is still going on today, ever since 1875. In 1969, Billy Graham spoke and 15,000 people attended under the big tent in the heat of the summer in England where everyone wore suits still at that time to Bible conferences, amazing. There was a Keswick, it looks like Keswick, but it's pronounced Keswick. There was a Keswick in Canada and another one in Florida and our own Dr. Sugden used to speak at those two conferences on a regular basis and perhaps some of you still remember those times and even went with him. But in 1965, something amazing happened. A young rector from All Souls Church, Langham Place, London, by the name of John Stott was asked to speak. He was given four sessions, each session one hour. And he spoke on Romans 5, one message, Romans 6, the next message, Romans 7, the third message, and Romans 8 for his last message. One hour, the whole chapter. Well, I scoured through the bookstores, actually online, Amazon, and found a printing of all of those sermons. And I don't know what I spent, but whatever I spent, um, it was well worth it. Those sermons were put into a book called Men Made New, 
those four chapters, expand it a little more, and then John Stott's commentary on the book of Romans, which I'm using every week, expanded those chapters even more, so you could stay, say that I have been thoroughly stottified. <laughs> I love reading the sermons because I preach. I love a little more expansion in his book, and his commentary is just amazing. I recommend them highly to you. But what also happened in that year was a watershed change for Keswick, because up to that time, it had been heavily involved in what is called the deeper life or the higher life movement, which is a way to describe sanctification that has to do with these middle chapters of Romans and, and sometimes leads to a, a more mystical approach, although that's part of it, that's not all of it. And John Stott's messages on Romans was a watershed change for the convention and to this day, their view on Romans 6 comes from John Stott. So, since I have spent so much time with John Stott, by the way, I met him once in a queue after he preached, and he signed my book on Romans, never looked up, <laughs> never said hi, Don, never, you know, bunch of people in line. But it was still a great moment in, in my own experience. So, I am giving to you much of the wonderful truth that I've derived from the ministry of John Stott and others in this portion of Scripture. And a better understanding, I think, of what sanctification really is. Now, Stott went on to say that in the book of Romans, you have in chapter 5, uh, actually, in the four chapters, you have great privileges that flow to us from the doctrine of sanctification. Romans chapter 5 is peace with God. Romans chapter 6 is union with Christ. Romans chapter 7 is freedom from the law. And Romans chapter 8 is life in the spirit. We've been through Romans chapter five and we've looked at the fact that now that we are in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we're in Christ, so important is that message. And now we've moved into chapter six where we're talking about union with Christ. In verse five of Romans chapter six, and this is what we looked at last week, it says, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death or in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. A wonderful, beautiful statement, almost confessional-like as it describes these two experiences of death with Christ and life with Christ. We're so united. Remember the word united is where we get our English word symphony? And it talks about the beautiful blending together. Here it's the work of Christ is fused into us. As we are in Christ, so all the blessings of Christ become ours. Specifically, we die with him. That happened 2,000 years ago, but it's only applied to us when we believe and as it says in Romans 6, our baptism is 
significant in that it signifies what actually happened. But we're also united with him in his resurrection. So last week we looked at the united with him in his death. The very important fact that the old life is dead even though remaining corruption still exists in my heart as a believer. Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're dead to the power of sin. You're freed from the penalty of sin and it's tyranny over you. And yet as we're going to see today, that freedom depends on our own yielding to the work of Christ and are yielding to the Holy Spirit. So we go to verse eight. This is Romans chapter six and verse eight. For, or now, if we died with Christ, we believe. Doesn't that sound like a confessional statement? We believe, and then you fill in the blanks. This is the claim of faith, and it is a claim of fact. We believe that we also will live with him. So there's this whole idea that faith believes more than it actually experiences. But it does not believe that which is not true. Faith claims to embrace more than we actually experience in our life, but it longs to experience more. We believe we've also been risen with Christ, even though sometimes our lives so pitifully display almost the opposite. Instead of new life, we seem to want to go back to the old death. Years ago, there was at a, at a convention in Chicago, they were singing the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. Remember that hymn? I need thee, oh, I, I need thee every hour. Someone in the congregation said, well, that's good, except I need him every moment. And this man went back and wrote these words, dying with Jesus, his death reckoned mine, living with Jesus, a new life sublime, looking to Jesus till glory doth shine, moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. Another great hymn. So we recognize we're dead, we recognize we're living, and we're looking to Jesus until we're with him in glory, which is exactly what we studied back in Hebrews chapter 12. Now look at verse 9. For we know, and you can circle that word know in your mind, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no longer mastery over him. Now back in chapter five, it talks about death reigning over us. And it controlled us like a horrible king and tyrant. But Jesus put death to death. And since we died with him, death doesn't have control over us either. And our physical death is but a passing into eternal life. Actually, we're in eternal life now as believers, but we pass into a new stage. 
And it's a glorious time in one sense. We also live with him. Raised with Christ, he cannot die. Raised with Christ, we cannot die. And that ought to give us glorious optimism because Jesus indeed put death to death. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? And Paul picked up that wonderful verse and quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where, O death, is your sting? And it's gone because the strength of sin is the law. And Jesus paid it all. So we come to verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you've got the the contrast between death and life, and then the comparison between the two. The death happened once, he died to sin once, and it is consistent in Paul's writings, we died to sin once, but the life we live, we live continuously to God. We died once to death's control and penalty, and we now live continuously today and forever seeking the glory of God. And these wonderful truths are so earth-shaking and so vital in our Christian life that they not only became the watershed change in a well-known conference many years ago, but could be the dramatic change in your life and mine if we grab hold of these truths and make them our own. I know things but I don't always know them. Know what I mean? (laughs) I know about something, but I really don't know it until it grabs hold of me, and that is so true of Christian teaching. I know it. Oh, but that one day, (laughs) glorious day, I know it. It grabs hold of everything I am and changes the way I think and the way I choose And the way I live, because I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's glorious. I know it, but I'm afraid sometimes I don't know it. So, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. I think the old translation has dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're keeping score, I'd say the first major movement in this section of scripture is counting. That's why the word is capitalized, counting. Very interesting term. This now shifts us from the indicative something that is factual, to the imperative, something that is morally bound to us like a command. This is the Greek word that actually means take inventory. 
So it's an accountant's term. Count as if you were taking inventory these truths to be true of you. Some translations have the phrase consider yourself. Another translation says regard yourself. One of my favorites is reckon yourself. It's an act of the mind. And it grabs hold of what is real. Now, if you go back in the chapter, you'll notice in verse 3, don't you know? Verse 6, for we know the old self is gone. Verse 8, as we read a moment ago, we believe, which is another way of saying we know, we're convinced. And now in verse 9, or in verse 9, the idea of we know. We know these things. And by the grace of God, we need to count them true. Faith is not make-believe. The truth of Scripture is not wishful thinking. It's not pretend. It's not an illusion. These things are real, albeit spiritual and harder to grasp, but nonetheless real. In fact, more real because the things we see and hold will pass away, but the spiritual truths of Christ will never pass away. There's more reality in what you can't see than what you can see. And yet we live in a world of what we can see. I'll believe it if I see it. What a stupid statement. It really is. It means that you're living your whole life on this human plane. Do you see God? We see what God does. We hear who God is. And we embrace it. And when we do, we sense it. We don't see him. But one day, when Christ comes, we'll see him. And we'll be like him. For we will see him as he is. Glorious day. But until then, we see him with the eyes of faith. And we grab hold on to what is true. The realization of actual facts. Daniel Patrick Monahan was a U.S. senator from New York, a Democrat. He made this amazing statement. I wish politicians today would embrace this. He said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not entitled to their own facts. John Adams said, as he defended the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre, facts are stubborn things. You can't play fast and loose with the facts, but that's exactly what our world is doing. And up is down, and left is right, and truth is air, and air is truth. That's why you need to go back to the word and find out what is real and embrace it. You can have your own opinions, and opinions mean very little, but you cannot have your own facts. Christian, you cannot have your own Bible doctrine based on your weak experience. You must embrace the truth of Scripture, which is God's voice. And then you've got something. 
stop living your life. I need to stop living my life based on how I feel or what I see or what people say. I need to live every day feeding on the word, the living word of a holy God who cannot lie. And when I do, my life is transformed. You are dead to sin and you are alive to God. Truth, if you're a believer. We must lay hold of these facts. We need, need to keep reminding ourselves who we are and what we are because we are in Jesus Christ. Again, going back to John Stott, he put it this way. Our life is in two volumes. Volume one, pre-conversion, the old self. When we came to Christ, the old self ended in a judicial death. United with Christ, we died with him. The old self is gone. There's still remaining corruption in me, but the old self is gone. Volume two is after conversion, and that's the new self. I'm dead to sin, volume one. I'm alive to Christ, volume two. And the transition, Stott says... Our baptism stands between the two like a door between two rooms, closing one and opening into another. He's talking about the baptism of, of, of spirit in which we are placed into Christ as well as that water baptism in a very visible and public way that signifies what has happened to us in our hearts. A new life has begun with, begun with a resurrection. The old life has ended. The score has been settled. The law has been satisfied. And I have been freed. Freed from the law's power. Why? Because I'm dead in Christ. So Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 2. I'm crucified with Christ. Oh yeah, I live. But the life that I now live in this physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead. And I'm a new life, a new person in Christ. When you are baptized in places like India, you often are given a new name. Your old name is taken away and you take on a new name. People often take on names uh, like Paul or, um, or one of the, uh, you know, John, not the Beatles, I'm, look, I'm thinking of the gospel writers, <laughs> Paul, John, Matthew, they'll take a name, some, uh, I heard of a guy who took on the name Spurgeon, uh, because that was all he heard from the American preachers preaching about Charles Spurgeon, so that's my new name, Charles Spurgeon. We do get a new life and our, our name should totally be different. Think of it, a, a married man can live as though he's not married. Unfortunately, many seem to. They can live as if they are single, but it's not true. And the ring on their left hand reminds them that they have been united in a vital 
and even a mystical way that should not be broken. But it's possible to ignore all of that and live your own way. By the way, the ring you wear on your finger is a token of a covenant. Token of a covenant is a visible reminder of a personal agreement or promise. Like the rainbow is God's token of his covenant, his promise never to destroy the earth again. And so is your baptism. It's a visible reminder when you enter into the waters of baptism of what has happened to you in a very vital and mystical and unseen way, but in a very real way. You are a new creature and you come out of the water dead to sin and what? Alive to God. It's interesting to me, sometimes we argue the mode of baptism but when it, what cannot be argued is that almost always in the early days, baptism was a going into the water and a coming out. Whether it was a stream or a mikvah, you went in and you came out. You went in, one person buried, died buried, come out like in a resurrection, a new person. And that's the significance In January of 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation. It was called Proclamation Number Five or 95. It was better known as the Emancipation Proclamation. And when that was given, 3.5 million enslaved African Americans had their legal status changed in a moment. They were free. Problem is, was word got out very slowly. And those who were legally free lived in the same way as they used to live, as slaves. What a sad picture of many believers. You are free and you live we live like a slave. You can still be enslaved experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. And we've got to stop living like slaves to sin when we're dead to it. And we are alive to God. Someone might give you Someday, maybe your parents pass away and there's a trust fund with your name on it. It should be the end of all your financial troubles. But it won't be unless you utilize it. Unless you go down to the bank and draw upon it. Though it be true of you, it may be lost on you. And though I am in Christ and free, it may be lost on me because by faith, I don't withdraw from his wonderful grace. But then we jump down to verse 13. No, 12, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Sin's like a gangster boss that controls you and dictates what you do for his own bidding, for his own goals and ends. 
Chapter 5, sin reigned over us. But now the power has been broken. And yet, he says, don't let it happen, which means it can. Right? You can let sin back in the driver's seat. God has done everything by his grace to set you free. He's put his spirit in your heart to give you power and even desire. And yet you can overcome all of that and let sin reign. That's why the old man isn't dead. The old aspects of sin, not gone. Our desire for this horrible thing is still there and sometimes even inflamed stronger. It's possible to sin, but it should be unthinkable to let sin be our king once again. So now we come to verse 13, and here's the second very important word. The first was counting, and now the second one is yielding. Verse 13, do not yield. Um, I actually put that word in there. It's not in the NIV. The NIV has the word offer, which is a good word. The New American Standard has the word present, which I think is the old King James as well. The Good News translation, surrender. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase, hand over. All good words. And this particular word, the word behind it, happens about 39 times in the New Testament, and it's a worship term. The first was an accounting term. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Now, this is actually a worship term where we offer or present or yield ourselves like a sacrifice to God. By the way, some astute scholar said that Paul has been unfolding the implications of our justification all the way up through the book of Romans, and here is the first ethical, moral imperative. Doctrine at last gives way to exhortation. First, you have to know the truth before you try to do the truth. And in fact, the translation says this, do not go on yielding any part of yourself to sin. You've been doing it, stop doing it, as an instrument of wickedness. But yield, in one decisive act, yield. It's a new charting of a course that has to be indeed uh, encouraged again, supported again, but you are to yield yourself to God as those who have been brought from the dead. Instrument is a very interesting word. It is a word that gives you the picture of, of many instruments being presented to a conductor so that the symphony is a beautiful blend of instruments to the glory of the song, to the fulfilling of the song. It's also a picture of soldiers presenting their arms to a general and presenting their weapons as instruments for his service. And so the idea is, is that we are to present any part of ourselves, 
all parts of ourselves. Sometimes people think this is just your body. It's more than your body. It includes your body, but it's your power of reasoning and imagination. Your ambition and desires are part of it. What you see and long for, where uh, your feet take you to the places of your choosing, that's all part of it. It's an act of the mind, this yielding. It's an act of the will, of the volition. It's determination. Where the first was a, an act of the mind comprehending, counting, assessing. Now it is an act of the will in yielding. Don't let sin be your Lord to use you in its service. Let Jesus be your Lord to use you in his service and yield everything you are, body, soul, mind, strength, heart, desires, burdens. Yield everything to his service for he is king and Lord of all. How often do you yield yourself? Well, there is the initial yielding, just like in conversion, there's the initial believing, but it's something that you reiterate and renew on a regular basis. William Barclay came up with this really interesting statement. It is in fact the simple truth that ethical change is not possible without union with Christ. We cannot live our physical life unless we are in the air and the air is in us. So we cannot live our spiritual life unless we are in Christ and Christ is in us. To talk about moralistic change without any supernatural change in the heart is futile. Ethical change comes from radical conversion in the soul where the spirit of God lives. So we come to verse 14. Sin shall no longer be your master. In verse nine, it was death. We're no longer in, under death's mastery. Now sin no longer is the tyrant that controls us or the master who orders us. Why? Because we're not under law. We're under the glorious grace of God. Sin shall not win. It only rules when we yield to it. And the reason why it doesn't rule us is because grace is conquered. Greater is the grace that abounds in us because of Christ than the sin that used to exist. The law demands righteousness but cannot produce it. Those who live by the law are overwhelmed by its impossible demands and live condemned by its standards. But those who are under grace are free from guilt for grace has conquered. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. Romans 8, 31, God is for us. No one can be against us. And so here it is in two key words, counting and yielding by the grace of Almighty God. The story is told of a great eagle who was captured by a cruel man. 
tied a rope to its legs and the other end of the rope to a post and the eagle spent its days, although designed for glorious flight, majestic in the skies, spent its days walking around a post in sad circles. A new owner took over control of the bird and announced that he would liberate the bird and a crowd showed up to see exactly what would happen and the owner took the rope off the bird and the eagle continued to walk in the same rut it had been in. And people wanted to yell, you're free. Don't you know you're free? But it didn't. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've saved us by grace and made us for spiritual flight. To live in Christ and for Christ and by the Spirit and all for the glory of God. But many of us forget we've been freed. And we're walking in the same old rut. It's like a prisoner who's been set free going back to the prison cell. It makes no sense. Oh God, this day, may we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then every day yield ourselves, body, soul, mind, and spirit to the service of our glorious King. In whose name we pray, amen.